One of the difficulties that we're going to come across as we learn this morning from God's holy word is something that nobody fully gets. No one fully understands it. No one really fully experiences it. And every faithful student of God's word will freely admit to our human limitations in the matter. Every theologian, if honest with his or herself and true to God and his word, will admit that what we're going to talk about this morning can't be categorized, can't be quantified, it can't be measured, it can't be compared to anything else whatsoever. And of course, what we're talking about is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. So before we get into the text in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne and heard the seraphim crying out, calling out, holy, 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 I want us to see something of the awesome God, to see something of his holiness, so that like Isaiah, having seen it, we might be transformed, we might be changed, we might be renewed by his awesome presence. And that's a word, awesome, that's commonly used today that's used only of God and only of his works in the Bible. The word is awesome. According to scripture, awesome is who God is and uh, what he does. For example, Job declared in Job chapter 37, verse 22, out of the north comes golden splendor, around God is awesome majesty. The psalmist exclaims in the 99th Psalm, Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. And then Psalm 66 verse 5 invites us to come and see the works of God, who is awesome in his deeds towards the sons of men. But as you know, the word awesome is so often employed in a vain way in our culture. As Americans, we just don't seem to be blown away anymore by the awesomeness of God or the awesomeness of anything else. We live in an age where we can peer into the Hubble telescope and we can see galaxy after galaxy after galaxy and all those beautiful pictures of stars and nebulae. We can pinpoint unseen planets in another solar system and try to make a determination as to whether that planet might support life. A defective gene can be isolated in a chromosome. We got iPods, cell phones, smartphones for us non-smart people. We have the internet. All those kind of things that bring at a moment everything from the world into our hands at the touch of a screen. On the television set, on PBS, we've witnessed Mount St. Helens erupt in slow motion. We've seen fish spawn. We've seen flowers grow at an increased rate. It seems we have no more wonder, no more thought of, of mystery. We've even witnessed babies develop in the womb from conception to birth. We live in an age when wonder and mystery no longer fascinate us. Even in worship today, it seems that the sense of wonder, the sense of awe of God has become a rare ingredient. We think we know all about God because we know our Bibles so well. With careful note-taking, we outline God's attributes, but do we really know God by experience? So this morning, we're going to tackle something that we really can't get a complete handle on. We can't get a hold of it. 
completely. And quite frankly, that might bother some of us, <laughs> that we're going to still have that sense of, of mystery out there. Even R.C. Sproul, who, who gave that great series on the holiness of God, said he couldn't really ever get a hold of it. And I listened to a, a recording just recently even in these days, R.C. is still saying, I, I still haven't totally got it. And he's given a great gift to us in our generation on the holiness of God. God is glorious in holiness. I don't think we understand the holiness of God, and I don't think we can ever fully understand it. But I do think we can understand it a whole lot better than we do. And we can certainly, in that, experience God in his holiness in ways we never thought possible. So before we look at Isaiah's experience of God's holiness, let, let's look a little bit at what holiness means. When we think of holiness, we might think of sinless purity, of perfection. We might even think of fire and glorious splendor. And that's all certainly part of holiness, but it's much more, it's infinitely much more. The Hebrew word translated holy is kadosh. The seraphim cried out, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now the root word of Kadosh means to cut, to separate. When we talk about being sanctified or holy ourselves, we talk about being set apart unto something. That is our human holiness. But for God's holiness, it means to cut, to separate, to set apart. Literally, it means that God is something else altogether. Something else other than we are altogether. Theologians use the phrase holy other. Now, that'll work with H-O-L-Y, holy, or H-W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. Not only is God pure, not only is he righteousness, not only is God uncontaminated by sin, not only is God almighty and all-powerful and all-knowing, he is something else altogether in relation to everything else. He stands above, he stands distinct, separate, apart from his creation. He is perfect in every way, from everlasting to everlasting. He is God. I heard an illustration of this uh, from an evangelist by the name of Paul Washer. It's a little bit of crude illustration, but it works. I'm going to give you two creatures and ask you which one is more like God. Which creature is more like God? The seraphim who constantly cries out, holy, 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 flying around in God's immediate presence, or the tiny single cell microbe that's floating around in your bathtub. Which creature is more like God? The answer is neither. It's a trick question. The glorious angelic creature, the seraph who praises God in his immediate presence, is no more like God than the single cell microbe. Because they're both creations of God. Jeremiah said to the Lord in verse 6 of chapter 10, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great and great is your name in might. There is none like you. Nothing else is like you. The seraph is not like you. The microbe is not like you. The psalmist in Psalm 86 verse 8 praises God by saying, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. You see, it's not a quantitative difference. God is not like us in some way, just bigger and better. It's a qualitative difference. God is not like us at all. 
Have you ever noticed that all the false human gods, all the false gods of humankind, are mere quantitative extensions of humankind? The Greek and the Roman gods are simply human attributes taken to some kind of superlative, some kind of super person. Uh, They're stronger, they're bigger, they're better, they're more powerful, they're more beautiful, sometimes they're more wiser, but it's all human attributes. Many of the Greek gods were also morally deficient. And Norse gods loved to play tricks on human beings. (laughs) But they still only have superhuman attributes, some good, some bad. Man has always made gods in his own image. According to Romans chapter 1, man is in the habit of this, of exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and, and crawling creatures. You can't look at corruptible humankind and see anything of what God is like. You can't see what man can do and have any idea whatsoever of what God could do. When God opened the womb of a grieving woman by the name of Hannah, who was barren, she was unable to bear a son, and then God opened her womb, and she was able to bear Samuel, the prophet Samuel. Hannah declared in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. I like that last part. Nor is there any rock like our God. Because we must never get the idea that because God is holy, that he is aloof or he is remote. Or we have to go to the second star to the right to find him. God is not aloof. We know that because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. We know that because he sent his Holy Spirit to live in us. He is a rock on which we can place our trust, says Hannah. And this is why it's so important to understand something of God's holiness. Like in Isaiah's day, when we see our world falling apart, when we see our culture and our society undergoing a complete moral and spiritual meltdown in every possible way, and we look around and we look at the smartest and the brightest and the strongest of the creatures around us, many of them running for office these days, we know that we cannot put our trust in them because they are corruptible. And if that's all we had, we would be a most miserable lot. But we have one who has us, the Holy One, who is unlike anything we know. He so far exceeds everything and everyone else that there is no comparison. There is none like you, Lord, or there's any rock like our God. So with that little bit of understanding of holiness, please turn to Isaiah chapter 6 at the first verse. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, that's page 839 in the Bible in the racks. Last week we saw that King Uzziah had died. Isaiah's world was in a mess. He was fearful. The nation was melting down in every possible way. Verse 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two 
He flew. Now, the only other place that we read of these creatures is is in Revelation chapter 4. These seraph are called living creatures over in the fourth chapter of Revelation. Isaiah calls them seraphim. The word seraph literally means fiery one. Fiery one. Think of this. They glowed in the white hot presence of God. They had six wings, perfectly suited for the purpose for which God had created them. Isaiah could hear the sound of their hovering wings. I've been telling Jan all week, I've been practicing this. <laughs> she goes, what are you talking about? I hope you don't do that on Sunday morning kind of thing. That was my best attempt to take all the seraphim and all their fluttering. Day and night, says John the Revelator. They worship God. That's their purpose. That's why God created them. To worship him constantly in his immediate presence. They are the fiery guardians of the presence of God. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They had this antiphonal thing going back and forth. Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, 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 kadosh is the Lord of hosts. And verse 4 says, And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. I want us to do a couple of things this morning that might give us at least some feel for this scene in the temple. I'm not going to fill the room with smoke. We'd have to call the fire marshal. But this reminded me of one time, I think I've shared this story before, when I was over in Payette as a pastor, we had a fifth Sunday community sing in Payette on a Sunday night, all the churches got together, and we were meeting at the Christian church on a Sunday evening, and I was singing a solo with my guitar, and I was singing Don Francisco's song about Paul and Silas when they were in prison, praising God, and when I got to the part when I was singing where I said the walls of the prison began to shake and the doors were open, I looked up into the balcony of the Christian church over there and there was a bunch of young people sitting up there and they really weren't engaged in what was going on in worship. And so being the ex-camp pastor that I was, I stopped singing and I looked up at these kids and I said, when I get to the part of the song where the walls begin to shake and God opens the walls, the angels opens the doors, that is, I want you kids to stomp your feet on that wooden floor up there. If I'd known at the time that later the building was going to be condemned, I may not have done this. <laughs> and those of you who have been in that church are just cracking up. There's that wooden balcony, that wooden floor. I heard recently, I talked to a guy, they're restoring the building, so that's going to be a neat thing. But it was so cool. When I got to the part of the song that said, the walls begin to shake, all those kids up there, you know, and everybody's going, hope it doesn't come down. Well, that's what happened in Paul and Silas' time, so don't sweat it. The foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who began to call out. And the seraphim cried, holy, holy, holy. Now, we can give that a shot. Let's say it all together with me. Holy, holy, holy. Good, a little bit more. Pretend you're a seraphim. Holy, holy, holy. Okay, so now what we're going to do, I'm going to split it down the middle. And, uh, <laughs> and we got the seraphim over here and the seraphim over there. So we'll start over here. When I go holy, 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 I want you guys to do it. And then holy, holy, holy over here. Okay, you guys ready? 
Holy, 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 and all that's going on at the same time. It's not so hard on the pulpit. At least we get a little bit of the feel of what Isaiah was sensing that day. What happens when someone is confronted by the presence of the holy, holy God? Verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When confronted by a holy God, Isaiah became most aware of his own unholiness. Isaiah says, Woe is me. Literally, he says, For I am coming apart. I'm disintegrating, disintegrating. What was Isaiah's response to the presence of holy God? I'm coming apart at the seams. This is more than I can take. It reminds me in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the prophet, cries out to God, God, when are you going to come down here and do something about this mess down here? God, why don't you come down here and fix this? Anybody said that in the last week or so when watching the news? And when God does answer, what was Habakkuk's response? My lip quivered. I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. We've all seen that when a little kid knows that they're in trouble, their lips quivering. I've seen a politician do that a time or two when they had to admit to their stuff. They, they know that they're in trouble, that, that quivering lip. Habakkuk adds, he says, decay entered my bones. And in my place I tremble because I may, must wait quietly for the day of distress. For Habakkuk, the presence of the God, the voice of the Lord, was like having a bad flu where his bones and his body ached and he trembled like he had the chills. It's an awful, awful thing to be in the presence of God. I want to talk about two boating stories in the New Testament. first one's in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. Luke's Gospel, the fifth chapter, page 126, and the, the Bible's in the rack. In Luke chapter 5, Peter had been out fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, was frustrated. And Jesus said to him in the fifth verse, well, go out again. <laughs> Go out again, put, put out your, into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. You know, here's this seasoned fisherman, been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing. Guy comes along the seashore and says, hey, give it another shot. Why don't you cast over here? Verse 5, Peter answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Paraphrase, Lord, mind your own business. <laughs> fishing is my business. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Meaning, okay, guys, let's humor him. Verse 6, when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. It's like every fish in the sea jumped into their nets. God did something. Jesus did something that only he could do. He did something awesome. Verse 7, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. 
Now, now what if, might have been Peter's response to this awesome thing? Peter was a fisherman. Got to get out of contract and say, Lord, let's go into business. We, we can do this on a regular thing here. I will fish, Lord, and you keep those fish coming. 50-50, Jesus and Peter. I will give you first billing in the yellow pages. <laughs> no, what was Peter's response when he realized who this is, who Jesus is? Verse 8. But when Peter, Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Lord, I can't stand to be in your awful presence. My own sinfulness is tearing me apart. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Another boat story in Luke's Gospel over in chapter 8, verse 22. Begin at the 22nd verse of Luke chapter 8. Now it came about in those days, Jesus' disciples got into a boat and he said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep and a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. These were experienced fishermen. If they thought they were going down they were going down. The Sea of Galilee is much like Cascade Reservoir. It creates its own wind tunnel. At Cascade, you have East Mountain on the east side, West Mountain on the west side. I like the way they name things in Idaho, East Mountain, West Mountain. And, uh, you know, so without any warning whatsoever, that wind can come up and the waves can be dangerous immediately. And the Sea of Galilee is, is even worse. Verse 24. <coughs> They came to Jesus and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves and they stopped and it became calm. Now listen carefully to this next verse, the last part of the account, verse 25. And he said to them, where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Jesus calms the waves. They thought they were perishing. Jesus calms the waves and then they, it says, then they were afraid. Who is this? Who is this person who is in the boat with us? Back to Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5. What is Isaiah's response to God. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm coming apart. I am disintegrating because God is holy and I am not. I have a dirty mouth. That's my sin. I live a bunch of old, with, among a bunch of people who have dirty mouths. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he immediately was confronted with his own unholiness as brilliantly made known by God's holiness. We cannot confront a holy God without facing our own filthiness. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. 
and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Having been in the presence of a holy God, God cannot leave us in our sinful condition. What Isaiah needed was cleansing, not destruction. His sin was that he had a dirty mouth, a foul mouth. So God touched him at the very point of his sin. I like the way that Chuck Swindoll illustrated this at a Promise Keepers clergy conference in, in Atlanta, Georgia. When he was talking about this part, he reached out like he was getting a hot coal and he put it to his own lips and went, sound effects today, right? Yeah, the burning coal at his lips. The angel took a burning coal out of the temple, hibachi, out of the altar, out of the burning flame, touched it to his lips, says, your iniquity is forgiven. It's taken away. What Isaiah expected was condemnation. What he expected was destruction. What he got was forgiveness. What he got was cleansing. What, what if the awesome God really did take our worship seriously and meet with us here today with his presence? And the point is, he does. He does. And we cannot meet God and remain the same. If we leave this place untouched this morning, whether it's about cleansing of our sin or anything else, it means that you missed something, and that something was God. Something was God. Now watch how Isaiah was changed, how he was transformed. He immediately switched from being completely undone to integrity, which means having it together. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. You know, I really like that because God asked a question, Who shall I send? And Isaiah is the only one there. <laughs> you would think it would be obvious. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? But Isaiah wants to immediately answer that question. You know, it's like Isaiah, that, well, maybe he'll offer it to somebody else or someplace else, but I, I really want to do this. The Lord knows that this is a personal call for Isaiah, a call to Isaiah and Isaiah alone. As I was thinking about this, I thought of, you know, a loving father who, who has bought a really neat gift for his daughter or for his son. You know, and he brings that gift into the house and he's carrying it and he's kind of hiding it a little bit. He has a, a special gift for his beloved child. and He knows the child will take it. He knows she's going to love it. She, he knows that she wants it and he's got it in his hand and he says, who shall I give this to? <laughs> you know, what's the child going to do? We'll give it to my brother. <laughs> no, no way. I want it. Give it to me. Whom shall I send? Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. You know, there's not a single instance in all of Scripture, in all of Christian history as far as I know of, of anyone coming into God's presence, of really experiencing the presence of the awesome and holy God, and that person leaving exactly the same person as Winnie leaving without an attitude change, leaving without a change in character, leaving without a change in, in commitment. Lord, you want somebody? I'll go. I want to do that. In a few moments, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, and we're going to be afforded the same kind of experience as Isaiah in God's presence.
So how do we as believers draw near to the holy, holy, holy God? The Bible is clear on this. As believers, we draw near to God in the exact same way we came to him in the first place. We consciously enter God's presence. And how did we come to God the very first time? We came on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And we came along with a heartfelt recognition, like Isaiah, like Peter, like Habakkuk, of our own sinfulness. Isn't that the way you came to Jesus Christ the very first time? Yeah. The Apostle James shows us this in James chapter 4. Got you bouncing around today. The fourth chapter of James. In verse 5 of that fourth chapter, James tells us that God jealously desires to make us aware of the Spirit of God who dwells in us. The literal translation is this, God jealously longs for the spirit that he has made to live in us. And then verse 8 says, James chapter 4, those familiar words, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Question is how? How do we draw near to God and he will draw near to us? How do we draw near to God? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and what? He will exalt you. James is roughly paraphrasing the 24th Psalm. You can turn back to that if you want to. I told you I'd have you flipping today in the the chapters of God's Word. Psalm 24. 24th Psalm of David. Where David tells us the Lord is the creator and the sustainer of the whole world. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our reverent loyalty. And he says in verse 1 of the 24th Psalm, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? That's basically the same question we're asking when we invite people to come to the table of the Lord and share in communion this morning. Who may come? Who may stand? Who can stand in his holy place? Who can stand in that place of his immediate presence? And the answer is in the next verse in the 24th Psalm. Who can stand in the holy place? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood or has sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek Your face. Who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall receive a blessing from the Lord? He who has a clean, who has clean hands and a pure heart. According to James, the new covenant requirement for an into God's presence hasn't changed from the old covenant requirement. James wrote to Christians, to Christians, not unbelievers. He didn't write to those who were uninterested in God's presence. 
He wrote to those who were saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We cannot worship God in the beauty of holiness. We cannot enter God's holy place. We cannot boldly push through the veil into his presence and draw near in confidence to the throne of grace without clean hands and a pure heart. We draw near to the holy, holy God the exact same way we came to him in the first place. We consciously enter God's presence. We push through the veil on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ along with a heartfelt recognition of our own sinfulness. The experiential truth of entering God's presence with clean hands and a pure heart, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, is made most evident when we come to the table of the Lord. I want to read the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that I usually wait until right before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, but I want us to see them now. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, Three and, and 26 to see how this works. And there's a couple of verses that we don't read very often, maybe not often enough here. You'll recognize the words at uh, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we see how this works. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For our purposes this morning, we're not going to stop there. Paul continues in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Okay, how do we keep from eating the bread and drinking the cup in an unworthy manner? Paul answers our question. Verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That Greek word that's translated examine himself is one that we've talked about in recent days here. It's a very common descriptive word that's often used in the New Testament. The Greek word is doximos. Remember that? Doximodzo. It means to put to the test or to be put to the test. It refers to that, the testing or the purifying of precious metals. The noun form of doximos is or doximazo, the noun form is doximos. In ancient times, they would melt and they would boil the precious metal like gold, and the dross, the impurities, would rise to the surface, like scum to the surface, and they would skim off all that crud, and what was left was pure. It was doximos. And then when the metal hardened, they would stamp that precious metal with the word doximos, pure, approved. When we gather at the table of the Lord, we are to doximos ourselves. We are to put ourselves to the test. We are to test the attitude of our hearts. We are to test the actions of our hands. 
God wants clean hands and a pure heart. Not only so they're clean and they're pure, and sometimes we think that's the point. No, God wants clean hands and a pure heart so we can stand in his presence and hear the holy, 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 the trembling, and all that goes along with being in his presence. So when we come together and we partake of the cup and the bread, we are to give ourselves a thorough examination. We are to look honestly at our hearts and our attitudes, look for things that should not be there. We need to sift out all evil and take it before the Lord. What are our motives? What are our attitudes towards the Lord? Our attitudes towards his people? Our attitudes towards the communion service itself? This table becomes a special place where God in his presence purifies his church so we can stand in his holy presence. Why would God have us confess our sins before him? The answer in a simple sense is, if we're not confessing it, we're not letting it go. If we're not confessing it, we're not letting it go. One of the Greek words for forgiveness is aphesis. Some of you will remember that. It means to release, to let it go. When we confess it, we let it go. God lets it go. You know, God's going to bring it to the surface one way or the other. Did you ever think of that? You can either confess it or God's going to boil it out of you. And you're wondering, what's going on here? Paul is asking the Corinthians, okay, which one would you rather have? Forgiveness is one thing and cleansing is quite another. And God is going to clean us up one way or the other. And why is God so serious about this? Because he jealously longs for the spirit that he has made to live in us. God wants you to dwell in his holy presence more than you want to dwell in his holy presence. Did you ever think of that? That's why he sent Jesus. That's why he forgives us of our sins. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 1, 19 in the continual sense, in the life of the believer, the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. By examining ourselves, by confessing our sins, we stand in God's presence with clean hands and a holy heart. We draw near to God in the exact same way we came to him in the first place. We consciously enter God's presence on the basis of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, along with a heartfelt recognition of our own sinfulness. David said in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are broken, a broken or a humble spirit, a broken and contrite or repentant heart, Oh, God, you will not despise. Now, I'm going to take us out on a limb of faith a little bit here right now. A limb of faith of God's promises as we prepare to eat the bread and, and drink the cup. Because I believe that during the invitation hymn and the, the quiet moments of silence as the bread is passed and, the, and then the cup, that if you will open your heart up to God, and if you allow the Holy Spirit to reveal those deep, dark areas of uncleanness in your own life, if you confess them before God and experience his precious promise that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if you do that, 
you will experience the holy presence of God in a way that you've never experienced or you maybe you've never experienced for a long, long time. Maybe in a way you never thought possible. You see, there's a difference between God's omnipresence and his manifest presence. His omnipresence means that God is everywhere to the same extent at the same time. By his manifest presence, we mean that God makes himself real to us. Right here, right now. We become consciously aware that we have entered the holy place. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Shall we pray? Father, now we come before you. We push through the veil. Father, we know that as God, you know all things. You see all things. You already know our hearts before we even want to reveal our hearts. Father, you know all things. And most of all, Father, you desire that we would dwell, that we would live in your holy presence. Father, I thank you for this very tangible thing, the Lord's Supper that you have given to us, where our Savior Jesus Christ is present with us in a way, Lord, that... uh, I think is unlike any other. Where two or three are gathered, he's present in our midst, Father, but at the table, his table of the Lord, where you want to do a work, where you want, us to, you want to draw us in and take us in, where you want to freely give to us those things you have for us as our loving Heavenly Father. Father, we come into your presence. We ask you to change us. We ask you to work in us. Father, in the quiet moments of the next few minutes, Lord, I expect you to do a marvelous, wondrous work in each one of us. And I pray it in Jesus' name.